Hey, Simi, welcome to episode 134 of the So This Is My Why podcast. I'm your host and producer, Lingya, and today is another mini checking with me. It's the final week of November, and next week we're entering the final month of 2023, which frankly sounds pretty insane to me. There are only 37 days left in 2023, and while some might call it a home stretch, in a great many ways it hasn't been for me. And if you haven't been following my journey, I actually went to Singapore for the second time in October to conduct my very first epic series of eight steamy interviews over the span of four days. Now, mind you, I have never done more than two interviews in one day, virtually, for an entire week, let alone eight in four days in person too. Lessons learned? You can actually build your endurance. It was tiring at first, but over time, I got into a rhythm and I like to think that those interviews went really well. And don't worry, those episodes are coming up very, very soon in the next few weeks. So just keep your eyes peeled and subscribe to see me if you want to get the notifications. Second thing I learned, you really need a team for this. Now, in this regard, Carl's Mark's team at SGAC was a tremendous support. And Carl himself was a former CME guest. He is the founder of ASCAP and GAPGAC, known otherwise under the umbrella of Hatmill, and he generously allowed us to film all the episodes at his Limbay studio, which you can also rent as well if you're in Singapore. They have a stunning, stunning background for all the interviews done, and you can just check out all my social media platforms to see what they look like. Now, as you can imagine, those eight interviews plus running the personal branding business took me up for October. So in November, I decided to take a step back from doing interviews to focus on my actual personal branding work, which has actually been going really well. I had two clients whose posts were featured by LinkedIn. One became a LinkedIn top voice. Some people went viral. And for me, viral essentially means anything about 50,000. And some of them hit six-figure impressions per post, which was great. One person crossed an overall 500,000 impressions and this is secure a number of client engagements as a result of building her personal brand on LinkedIn as well. And I also onboarded two more clients whose stories I'm very, very excited to share. Now, some thoughts on running my personal branding business. Number one, I knew starting out that people don't stick to their five to 10 year plans. Things can shift quickly. You need to pivot where it's required. But I also knew at the same time that even if I was to pivot, there is absolutely nothing about my time spent on personal branding that would be wasted. Because no matter what, I have to personally always be building my personal branding business. Why? It's mine and mine alone. No one can take it from me, but I can take it with me everywhere. And also, if it's done well, it doesn't matter how many different things I end up doing in the end. I can bring all those seemingly disparate interests together so they become like a cohesive whole that people will know and appreciate me for. Second, this industry is growing. Personally, I was convinced of building a personal brand. And mind you, I never cared about things like personal development before. But now I do because while I was building a brand online, I unwittingly managed to open doors. For instance, Penguin offered me a book deal. A number of C-suite executives asked to work with me. A Goldman Sachs executive director asked to meet up. I've managed to attend and be invited to a number of interesting events and be on a speaking panel and also grown my own client base organically. Every single client I work with now has been inbound. And I know there are plenty of other things I haven't tried to start growing my business. So it's exciting to see what 2024 will bring. I'm gaining very intimate knowledge of many different industries. With So This My Why, I always do extensive research about a person before interviewing them. It's almost like I'm orbiting around them. Whereas now with my clients, I do the same level of research, but I get to work with them directly. I get to ask them directly as many dumb questions as I want and really, really learn and understand what's happening from the thought leaders themselves. Including things like what's happening in the AI space? What's the ESG developments in Malaysia and regionally? How has the oil and gas space evolved? What's the state of venture capital like? And so much more. And finally, it's time to scale. I always knew that I'll start off by focusing on one-on-one personal branding services, but that this can continue forever. I can't keep trading in my time and my ability to impact people. It's limited to the 24 hours I have in a day. So now I feel that it's time to work on a new course 
tentatively titled Build Your Why. It's a course that's essentially built off all of the observations and lessons I've made with my existing clients for the past six months. And the observation is this. Everyone has an interesting story to tell. But number one, most people don't think they're interesting. Two, they're too shy to share their story. Third, they can't remember those interesting stories and moments and they don't know the right questions to ask themselves to extract it. Fourth, even if they do have those interesting stories, they have no idea how to angle it so that it's geared to a set of objectives, whether it's to gain more clients, increase brand awareness, or attract job opportunities. But there is a way to achieve all that. And I can do that in a five-week community-based course. Now, this course is still being built. But if you'd like to stay informed, and mind you, I'm doing a special beta launch with a special price just for newsletter subscribers, you can find out more by subscribing to the CME newsletter. The link is in the description. Now that's the personal branding side. As we enter to December, I'll be focusing on completing my final six interviews for the year and wrapping everything up while planning for 2024. My first full year as an entrepreneur. I'll likely do a more comprehensive wrap-up post then, but before signing off, I'm going to highlight some of my favorite moments from recent Steamy episodes, just in case you've missed them. Now let's firstly go back to episode 122, where we met Peter Young, aka Mr. Money. Now Mr. Money grew up hating money and thinking it was evil, but then he decided to go all in and launch his personal finance YouTube business, which to be frank, was a real crime. I would work there from 8 o'clock and by 7.30 CK will come from his work. We'll continue working until 2 o'clock, wow. sometimes 4 o'clock, hit home, come back to the office at about 8, 9 o'clock, work again. The day just repeats like that. It's just grind and grind and grind and grind and grind. What kept you going? Was there ever a point where you thought, maybe this should be an easier way? An Every easy day. Every day I ask myself that question. Yeah. I think literally our, our joke among ourselves partners is this. Man, if we just keep this operation a little bit smaller, all of us will be driving a Porsche, man. Yeah. Yeah, let's just drive a Porsche. You know, why, why not next month let's just drive a Porsche? So that's <laughs> our joke. When you say drive a Porsche, it means that let's just cut down the numbers, just work on few things. Then we would drive a Porsche. But no, lah, that's not a plan. Mr. Money's journey wasn't easy. There were plenty of people who wanted to take advantage of him. So, of course, I had to ask Mr. Money how he handled that. So, I imagine people do want to take advantage of you as oh. you start to build and be <laughs> recognized. I mean, I remember when we had this Starbucks meeting and then there was this guy who came out and was like, Mr. Money, and he was so happy. He wanted to take a picture with you and you were clearly not faced. It's clearly not your first time. So, there's clearly recognition there. There must have been people who came and said, I want a slice of this. Yeah, there are. There are. <laughs> Usually we are very careful with that. Yeah. Uh, over the years, there are some people who come and find us and try to offer to take our business to the next level. Yeah. There are some sincere ones. There are some insincere ones. How do you evaluate? In the past, I used to just trust everyone. But today, I don't. I'm very much more careful. Yeah. How do we evaluate that for me personally is when someone comes and approaches the first thing I gauge is whether does this person even talk to me about profits, about what do I get? If anyone come to me today and they start telling me that they can help me and they start asking me for what they can get out of this, I am a little bit more cautious already. But do I bring up that conversation? I do. I will bring up one because I don't believe that people should work for me for free. So at the end of it, I always tell them that look, this is what I think you should be getting or what do you think you should be getting? But if they very quickly want to jump on it, then it tells me that they have this element that they want to protect themselves. It simply means that the trust level is not there. That's all. So there are also certain people who will just come and be very greedy about things. Then you want to be just disassociate. Like my opinion is don't waste time. If someone comes over, if things doesn't click, then... Just don't waste time. Don't bother trying. Trust me, when it comes to this part, 90% of the time, your hunch about who you can click with is correct. Mm. Yeah, I, I mean, you've been to parties and you've talked to people, right? And you, you go to events and you talk to people. There are certain people you're just like, yeah, they are interesting, but, but it's not the kind that revives you when you talk. Yeah. But rather, 
you feel tired after talking, right? You feel like you need to think a lot. It's not that they're a good person or bad man. It's just... Wavelength's different. Wavelength's different, right? Then just stay a little bit away. We also talked about hiring and potentially publishing his revenue numbers on YouTube. Read the book, man. It's one of the best books around. Classic. Right? Written by researchers rather than gurus. So this story is because they talked about this particular steel mill in the US where their staff are all farmers. So unlike normal steel mill that is built in other places, they purposely go to places where there's farmers, traditional industries, farmer. Because they say that to get them to wake up with that discipline is not something that can be trained. You can't train people. That comes down to family education. But number one, once they have the discipline, then what we do is we motivate them by paying them more. But I also expect more from you. So I hire five, but we work like we are 10 people and we pay them eight. So it becomes a win-win. I don't have to pay you less. I can pay you more than what the market is paying. But you are more than happy and willingly work more than you're supposed to. And he doesn't mean the hours. He meant it by productivity level. So his meal with the same number of people, the productivity level is way higher than other meals. Their shift starts at 8. The people will be there at 7.30 to prepare and start planning. And by 8, it's work. It's not planning. So it's like, you know how we all feature at 10 o'clock or 9 o'clock? You have coffee, you makan, everything before you start? Nope. You start work, you start work. So that is how it goes there. And because of that, I try to implement the same philosophy here where I tell all my staff the same thing and I adopt the exact same thing. That's why I'm not your father. <laughs> That's how it came about, right? I'm not your father. Because as an owner, as an employer, there's only that much I can do. I can help you, I can give you a platform, but it's not my duty to teach you to wake up early. That is in your family to run. That's your education overall. To be polite, to be sociable, all this is nothing to do with me. My job is just to give you a platform and tell you what works, what doesn't. And if you fit, congratulations. You're going to do well here. It comes in a package. Like, I'm not your father. <laughs> Hire five, work ten, yeah. pay eight, right? Yeah. So that's the idea behind how to sieve through and find the right people. Mm. You have a very interesting and extensive hiring process. Yes. To a certain extent, I think we are quite elaborated for a very small company. But it's important to get the right person. So I always tell my staff this one thing. We are just a platform. If you manage to work, if you manage to stay here, it is not because you're better than anyone else. It's just you're more fitting here. If you don't get to work here after a while where you have to leave, or anything, it's again not because you are not good, but because it's not fitting. That's all. It's all about fitting. Mm. I always tell them that we are like a bus heading towards one direction. If it's the right direction they're heading to, you hop on. If it's not, you hop off. My job is not to tell you where to go. My job is to drive to that direction. So if you like the direction, come along. If you don't like the direction, please get off. So that is the idea behind it. So for us, we have three stages of interview, although we don't follow religiously sometimes, but we used to follow very religiously. Yeah, as things got very busy and the hiring turnover faster, sometimes we don't. But generally we do. And when we don't, we usually end up screwing up. Like I can tell you that. <laughs> yeah. So we have a first phase where we give a phone call and that phone call, I'll talk nothing about work. I'll just talk about you. Where I want to find out, why do I have a phone call? The first thing is this. If you can talk to me, then it shows that you can communicate. If you can't even talk, you need face-to-face, -face, that got a problem. means you don't know how to communicate. So, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> right? And in that conversation, we'll be talking a lot about them as a character. So, that will be based on the kind of job that I want to hire at the point. There's a general set of kind of character that I'm looking for. Like, for example, the person has to be spontaneous enough, the person has to be crazy enough, the person has to be daring enough, adventurous enough, that kind of thing. Right, Because if you yourself is not a spontaneous person, it's hard for you to work in a startup. Mm -hmm. You will want things to be rigid. And I can't offer that at this level in my work. So these are all the things that we want. Now, number two, once you pass that, then we'll call you in for an, for an interview. We will say that the first part of the interview is I interview you. The next part is you interview us. So how does that work? The first part, I'll be asking you a bunch of questions. You'll start dwelling it a little bit into work how you manage and everything all. 
look for that kind of cultural fit further and then it's for you to ask any question and even interact with my staff for 10-20 minutes. So when you interact with our staff, we leave you there. We don't disturb you. We don't stop you from answering any question. We will just even walk off into our own meeting room and do our own things because you're going to be working here. If I'm going to stop you, it may not be a sincere conversation. So I want you to get whatever you want to get here because eventually you'll find out one. So if I'm really not on par, my company is not good enough, then see you, bye-bye. Lah. That's all. Lah. If you, after talking to myself, you realize something, you don't work here, good. Lah. You know, then I don't need to waste time firing you also in future, ma, right? So that's the next part. And the last part is the part where we really go into a more in-depth interview where we really, really drill down into a lot of stuff. So first part is my selection for basic stuff. Second part is a mutual selection. Third part is... I select you again. When did you decide I actually want to hire staff? Because it's very easy right, for YouTubers run their own little thing and it's very profitable. If I want to shut it down, I can shut it down. When you have a business, you have employees, that's a whole different ball game. Yeah, so if you're thinking about it as a business, then it is not as easy like an influencer because an influencer, what you do is that you just hire a part-time production guy, hire a part-time videographer, then get a job done. Actually, in fact, it's very good. Profit margin way higher. Everything's better. I also don't know why we do this, but yeah, we end up doing this. Your Porsche is still waiting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so we end up doing this. I have to say that for us, when we look at hiring, we don't simply hire, but we pay a lot of attention to workflow and we find out where in workflow we are stuck. First, we try to solve it internally. If we can't solve it internally and it accumulates to be a work that is enough for one person to handle, then we start hiring. Yeah, and that person if be able to handle this kind of work. We also get our staff involved in the hiring journey in that sense. Uh, number one, getting them to talk to them. Number two, also we ask our staff, do you need people? So very much unlike normal corporates, you ask anyone, they sure say they need help. One. Here they won't. Why? Because we have a profit sharing base. So we also teach them finance, very simple. You need more people to help you the work, you get less profit. So you decide. So literally our staff are the one who will tell us like, please don't hire or hire. So if they tell us they hire, I just need to remind them again. You do realize that you're going to get less. Huh? Uh, and usually that's when they'll say no or yes. And when they say yes, it means that they know that they really can't handle. So I get them involved huh, in that sense. So you are fully transparent with the numbers with all of your stuff? Oh yeah. They know how much the company makes. They know how much is each project. Wow. We don't hide. We are very honest about it <laughs> yeah <laughs> as much as we can the numbers are clear every year we'll do a review every quarterly or so we do a review Will and you... even if the roles are experimental and yep. we are not sure whether it's going to do well we also tell them up front that is experimenting right now you're going to be very lost <laughs> but bear with me you know it's like that would you ever go down the Ali Abdal route and share your numbers in public on YouTube not yet not yet <laughs> not yet not yet but I can say that we are profitable from the start. We have been very profitable from the start. The company has been growing by... 100% year on yen. Yeah, but that's like two years record, right? <laughs> <laughs> two to three years record. We have crossed seven figures. Yeah. But it's just, yeah, in that few years from that growth, yeah, it's very impressive because... Everyone is like, oh no, I don't have enough money during the pandemic. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> that, then it, it grew. But, yeah. but are we rich? No. I think last year... The bonus at the highest was a couple of months, right? Wow. A couple of months. It's not the best in the whole world, but mm. it's pretty good for us media startup especially. We also met Fabian Regal, founder of Secret Cinema in episode 129. Now, Secret Cinema, in case you haven't heard of it, is actually one of my favorite experiences when in London. Now, imagine this. You book a ticket for a date and a time, but no other information. And in the lead up to that unknown event, you start to get emails and the email will tell you where to go, maybe even what to dress up. Sometimes you even get a fun test where you're asked to report those results and then you go for the event, dress as you're told to dress. And you are told what the theme is. The theme is actually based off a movie. And these people behind Secret Cinema, they will have rented perhaps an entire underground space or a commercial building and transform the entire place into the movie itself and also hired hundreds of actors and actresses to play roles from the movie. You, the attendee, get to pretend as if you're living in that movie for one evening. 
which is pretty epic. Some of the movies they've done include Moulin Rouge, Blade Runner, and Star Wars. But as you can imagine, everything has to start small. They didn't have this big vision of hosting Star Wars with Disney right from day one. And as it turns out, the first event that Fabian did took place in the tunnel at London Bridge and cost only five pounds to attend. Wasn't the first one you did you taking over a tunnel and creating the secret skate park and it was like five pounds per ticket and it sold out within an hour? What was it like running that first event? Yeah, I think what was interesting was it started off with that concept of taking over abandoned spaces and putting on screenings. But yeah, what happened was that the tagline was tell no one. So it was secret cinema, tell no one. And the premise was that we wouldn't reveal the location or the film and we would send an email out and give you a character. You became part of the film, the story. The first film we did was Gus Van Sant's Paranoid Park, which is set in a community of skaters where one of the skaters has been investigated for a murder. And we found these old tunnels, which are underneath London Bridge and turned the tunnels into a skate, an illegal skate place where the audience became part of that skating community who were all under investigation for murder. So they arrived at this sort of like tunnel, which was like, there was a bridge with trains going past with a security guard shining a torch in their faces. And then they were brought into this space. And, you know, at that time it was, I don't know, it was like five pounds a ticket. Our budget was tiny, but we got some skate, some ramps and some various professional skaters who came to be the skaters. But, you know, the sound was terrible because it was based in these tunnels and we didn't have the best sound system and everything. So the, the sound sort of reverberated in all the tunnels, but it was quite atmospheric. I'll send you a picture of it. That was the first one. But at that first one, there was this moment where we were sending out the email. And I think I miswrote something on the email. Initially, we weren't going to reveal the location. And I think I wrote something like, we will not reveal the location or the film. And I think I made a typo mistake. And then I looked at it and I was like, yeah, we're not going to reveal the film either. And at that point, it was like, well, how would you sell 400 tickets without revealing anything? And then it was this idea around mystery was like, actually, what you don't know is what you really fear you'll miss out. You really care about things when they're secret, you know, and it's a lovely thing when someone does a surprise for you. It's a beautiful thing. They really think about it. Like, how would we create a surprise party for this person? Or how would you make a mixtape for someone that you love where you really think about what they're going to feel? So therefore, I think that was a big part of it. So I made this mistake. We sent the email and it just captured people's imagination. As I said, it was the rising times of the internet. It sold out immediately. It was well received. And at the first secret cinema, I went up at the end of the screening and I made a speech out of character that said, thank you for coming. The future shorts was always, there would be a host, someone would welcome everyone. And for the first three secret cinemas, I'd come up and go, thank you so much for coming, but then it's sort of like, no, why are we doing that? It's breaking character. And then it's like, no, we've got to make it real. It's got to feel like you're inside a film. I wonder, what does it take to run something like this? Who are the people you manage together? Because it's not a one-man show. You definitely need the right people who are also really passionate about this with the right attitude, like the right vision. How do you find these people? Yeah, Future Shorts, it just grew from my brother and I, and my brother stepped back to be a filmmaker, other folks that started finding out about it and just getting involved on a part-time basis. But it just grew, I think. It was just Future Shorts, we started doing shows and events. There was something called Future Cinema as well, which I won't go into, but that was from 2005 to 2007, which was taking the concept of Future Shorts, but taking movies like Nosferatu, Metropolis, and these sort of things. So it just grew. So I had a team, I had a team of people that we built and it was just people who were looking to do something different. But what was interesting is that as Secret Cinema grew, we had to build a sort of hybrid team of people that were from the theatre world, the cinema world and the event world. Yeah, it was a hybrid thing to be able to do what we wanted to do. Because the thing about Secret Cinema was, and why it's hard to replicate, is that it was a deeply emotional, personal chaotic, confusing, you know, we just make mistakes all the time because it was done from the heart and it was done out of passion and it was quite reactive at times. And I think both myself and the team would just be like, oh, we just had an idea. Let's just do it. You know, there were no rules. So sometimes we'd make mistakes, like the email wouldn't go or we did the wrong thing with the email. So we sent the email to newsletter and they didn't receive it. And then people on social media were like, oh, it's so clever what they're doing. They didn't send the email. That's so clever. And then we were like, holy shit, they really like that. 
for example, when we did One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, we did a partnership with The Guardian. They gave us 200 grand worth of media value. And instead of just advertising, we created a fake organization called the New Wellbeing Foundation. The idea was that we were going to build this kind of like new treatment, which was based on electric shock therapy, which is based on this new treatment for those with mental illnesses in the early 60s or whenever it was that came in. So we created this whole fake organization and then we sent a letter to the audience and we told them to fill in this application for this new wellbeing foundation that was advertised in the newspaper. So people didn't know whether it was real or not. But then we psychoanalyzed them, had a psychiatric test, took all of their information, understood exactly the relationship with their parents and all these different things, had all this data on them. And then you would we never just, fly. You would never fly this today with the GDPR. Yeah, you say it never flies, but we are living in it. Like those companies know more about us than we do. And what we would do is do it purely to sort of hopefully enrich their experience, etc. But what was interesting is that we, for example, on One for Nest, we decided that people have been misbehaving in the same way that the writer Ken Kesey, I think. Yeah, on the film is that been misbehaving and so therefore we were going to stop any form of communication with them, which is madness. We shut down our website, all our Facebook, and we said, you've been misbehaving, therefore there's going to be a 48-hour blackout. And then we just shut everything. The point I make is that there were sort of no rules and we could do everything that we wished. I think the premise of it was exactly what I'm doing now, is to give power back to people in terms of culture and entertainment and take them off the conveyor belt of predictability and then put them into a position where they have agency. I hate that expression. They have control of their own thing. And that's how it kind of started. And I was thinking like, if you could build a studio the size of Disney out of a secret, then you can change the world. But the point I'm making is that so much of the world is predictable. So the idea of people buying a ticket of which 30, 40,000 would without knowing what they were going to experience, where they were going and give huge trust to us as an organization, then I felt a responsibility to push things in new directions. So. I love what you're doing, the fact that it's basically turning what we accept as the norm and saying, no, you know what, let's do it differently. And the fact that it was mysterious, it's unknown, that's something that I really loved about Secret Cinema. But I'm just trying to put myself in your shoe. I would love to run an event like that, but if I had a big budget, I would also be really worried as to whether the audience would even care about this. They would actually even buy a ticket. Why be able to make anything out of it and go back to my investors and say, you know, your money is safe with me. So how did you manage the risk of it just falling flat on your face and also just pushing the boundaries of what could be? That's a very good point. I think the way that I approached it and somehow we survived was this idea that essentially when Future Short started, 100 people would come, they'd pay five pounds a ticket, that would go into the budget. Then we would do another thing. Any money that was left over, we would reinvest in the next month, do something more, bring a DJ, whatever. So it just grew from that. So essentially the investors were the audience and more than ever now, the investors can be the audience, right? You look at this like sort of extraordinary world of like crypto and all the sort of web three and all this stuff. There's a real opportunity to decentralize the system and not have to go to normal traditional investors and actually build things that people perhaps might not normally because essentially you can crowdfund everything or just build a, hundred, a thousand NFT. Essentially, we were crowdfunding. The first secret cinema, 400 people came, they spent five pounds, then they spent another five pounds on drinks. And so the profit that we made from that first event went into the second event. And then we grew because there was word of mouth. How do we do it? I think purely just really through the word of mouth through having this sort of weird confidence that this was going to work from somewhere and just doing it like club nights. If you look at theater shows, often that's how they worked. It wasn't a Ponzi scheme, and that's a horrible word. So from 2007 to 2012, as it was growing, it was just based on the audience. Most people, they're like, let's get investors, let's get some money and let's get it all financed, then we do the show. No, it wasn't like that. We got the money through the audience's belief in the thing. So they were the investors. And then we were doing shows without revealing anything of the product. So they were investing in a secret. What made it special is that each and every one of them created secret cinema. Like the team behind secret cinema was one thing. They created secret cinema. But the second part of it was that the audience became participants in it. In the early stages, they facilitated it. And the weirder we got, the more they loved it. You know, occasionally they didn't like everything we did, but most of it, they were sort of down with. And even when we got it wrong, they accepted that we were pushing things in a direction that other people hadn't pushed 
for some time. Then we meet Charlie Todd at episode 131. Charlie is a professional prankster and he runs a prank collective called Improv Everywhere. The goal for Improv Everywhere is very simple. Create very large-scale pranks that bring joy to people. And millions have seen his work, including that moment where hundreds of people froze in Grand Central New York. The MP3 experiment where thousands of people listen to MP3 and start doing crazy things together. For instance, freezing in spots walking backwards or entering into a store and there's also the very epic no pens subway where at the start of the year people will start going to the new york subway wearing no pens they don't say anything they don't acknowledge it they don't look at each other and you can imagine if you were on that subway yourself you think these people are really crazy but there must be something going on if so many people are doing it and it's quite the movement Now, one of the main principles that Charlie talks about is the principle of asking for forgiveness rather than permission, and also how Charlie measures impact. You said before, ask forgiveness rather than permission. I wonder, how do you ask for forgiveness? For instance, that YouTube performance on the rooftop, you never break character. You never actually explain. He pretended he was Steve Bono the whole way. So how do you ask for forgiveness? (laughs) Yeah, well, the guy playing Bono didn't break character, I guess. But yeah, I mean, when I say ask for forgiveness and not permission, it's really important to me that there's the golden rule of the prank, which is I'm not going to stage a prank or a surprise that I wouldn't want someone to do to me. I'm not going to stage something that I wouldn't want to happen on my sidewalk. I don't have a store, but, or in my dad's store, my dad, my dad has a retail store. And I think if a bunch of people came in and froze in place in the retail store, that'd be fine. Everybody'd probably buy something on the way out and it'd be fine. But I can understand how those types of actions are, are stressful for someone who doesn't know if, if it's something more sinister. But I think if you're doing something that's positive, that's harmless, that's safe, that's well thought out, then I think you can ask for forgiveness. My strategy often with things, if someone seems to be concerned with something I'm doing, is just to let them know it's almost over. We did a thing on a subway platform once called the Subway Spot. We took the hottest subway platform in the city at 34th Street and 6th Avenue, and we basically turned it into a steam room, a spa experience with people walking around with bathrobes, and there was massages and misting stations, iced fruit water and things like that. And we had no permission. We just did this on a live subway platform. You would never, ever, 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 ever be given permission to do that, no matter how much money you were willing to pay. There is no permit that will let you turn a subway platform into a spa. Doesn't exist. No one will let you do it. So it has to be unauthorized. And then you have to be smart about it and make sure that people aren't close to the tracks and that you're not creating a situation where you're disrupting pedestrian flow. But when we were doing that, some police officers walked by maybe 30 minutes into it and they're like, what's going on? And I said, oh, we're doing something fun. We're almost done. And they're like, okay, so when we come back 30 minutes from now, you'll all be gone. I said, yes, we will. And they left and I did it for 25 more minutes and then we were gone. Speaking and being nice and being friendly, apologizing and letting people know it's almost over has been my trick because I don't need to be there all day. You know, we're doing something fun and that's okay if we do it for an hour and not two hours. The YouTube prank that you mentioned was a different situation. So that was back in 2005 and YouTube was playing some shows at Madison Square Garden I lived in an apartment across the street from Madison Square Garden. It was a four-story apartment building with a roof, and I had access to the roof, and my roommate Chris Kula was a drummer in a cover band. We decided to dress his cover band up like U2 and have them perform U2 songs right before the real U2 show. So when there were lots of U2 fans in the area on their way to the venue, it would look like U2 was doing an extra surprise performance two hours before the actual show. And the police came, neighbors complained, it was loud. It was five o'clock in the afternoon, but people complained. At that point, I think the guy playing Bono, my friend Ptolemy Slocum, made a little bit of a mistake, but he stayed in character and sort of insisted that he was Bono and didn't need to give his driver's license over to the uh, cops. Because everyone knows me. (laughs) Yeah, because everyone knows who I am. I'm famous, I'm Bono, even though it's just a 27 year old comedian wearing a wig. It was funny and it made for a funny story, but we got tickets and had to go to court. Fortunately, charges were dismissed, but that's sort of the closest I've ever come to getting in trouble, although it probably would have just been a fine or something. Imagine for something like the Frozen Grand Central one, you can kind of measure it by saying, oh, 37 million people saw this, but I imagine not everything is so measurable. So how do you think about impact? 
Well, I guess I think about impact in a number of ways. There's the immediate impact of just seeing people smile. And our videos tend to capture that. They don't capture all of it. It drives me crazy when I'm at one of our events in person and I'm not typically holding a camera, but I'll see someone amazing reaction like, oh, there's no one nearby with a camera. We'll never have this in our video. But a camera operator is off getting another amazing reaction. That is my favorite part of my job is when the project's over and it's gone well. And two days later, the photographer sends me his gallery of photos and I'm looking at smile after smile after smile. That is the biggest impact of just brightening someone's day. I was walking through Grand Central and I saw this incredible thing where 200 people were frozen in place and I couldn't figure it out. And they unfrozen, they walked away and it was magical. And I'm going to tell that story for the rest of my life. That That's the goal. I think one major way to measure impact is just the reactions of people in person. Obviously, the comments on YouTube, it's nice to, to see things like that. And then another real bit of evidence of our impact is inspiring people to go do similar things. With our Grand Central project, where we had people freeze in place in Grand Central Terminal, as you said, that has 37 million views. It got like 20 million views in the first month, I think. And this was 2008 when 20 million views were actual real views. So you felt like the world had seen you. Yeah. Uh, unlike, uh, you know, Facebook view now that's like two seconds or something scrolling by on mute on your phone. So it, it had a huge impact, but the more exciting impact was people went out and frozen place in train stations and on college campuses and parks all over the world. The first few months after that video went viral, people went out 300 cities and went and froze in place. There was this amazing prank in New York last week where there were these guys, they all lived together in the Upper East Side, working in tech like coder guys. One of them cooked steak every Friday night. And as a joke, one of them turned their apartment into a steakhouse on Google Maps. That's an inside joke. They put it like a, a email address or a phone number. All of a sudden, all these people in the neighborhood started asking about it and all of the roommates and their friends and friends of friends left five-star reviews on it. And people were writing and saying, we wanna to come to the steakhouse. And they would say, well, it's very exclusive. There's a waiting list. And they got this waiting list together and they had like a hundred names on the waiting list. And they decided to actually do a steakhouse at a different venue nearby and invited these hundred people to come to this fake steakhouse that was made real for one night only. I think this is a hilarious prank. And they did their best to do, I mean, it wasn't <laughs> an amazing night because it's just some dude cooking steak. But one of the guys behind that just emailed me yesterday and said, I want to let you know that I grew up watching your Frozen Grand Central prank and your Best Buy prank and all the things that you did were an inspiration towards us actually doing this thing. That made me so happy to receive that email you know, something I had nothing to do with, but to know that our history of doing things is inspiring other people to go out and do silly, ridiculous, fun stunts is very heartening. Next, we have episode 132 with Terence Lee. Terence Lee is the editor-in-chief of Tech in Asia, which is a media publication that covers all things tech and startup in Southeast Asia, the highs and the lows. So you can imagine the irony when they had to also cover their lows, which is when in Asia, which recently sold, by the way, to Singapore Press Holdings for a reported $30 million, had to go through two layoffs. Here is Terrence's take on those two moments and his main lessons learned. So going all the way back to 2015, that's around when you first joined, fresh 4 million investment, you have over 100 full-time staff across China, Pakistan, and Southeast Asia. And then 2016, you had to let go of most of your freelance contributors, most of your India stuff. What was that period like? I believe you had to fly to India as well at the yeah. time. So that was, I think, pretty small-scale layoff. I think the bigger one later on. What happened was that we tried to do like the India conference, very tough market. It didn't go well for us. I don't record numbers exactly, but I think we lost money every year pretty much. What it, do you think went wrong? I think it was a tough market because there were so many competitors. There were already so many conferences. There were well-known tech media brands and conference brands there. We were kind of entering late yeah, into the market. It's just tough getting sponsorships and getting people to pay for tickets. All those combined, I think, drove us into a loss in India every year. Then we decided to just pull the plug. So I had to fly to India to lay people off. They were surprised. Probably all of them did not see it coming. 
that was definitely a tough period because yeah, it's my first time having to do a layoff exercise. And some of them had joined us from very credible publications, writers and so on. Some of them cried and all that. It, it, it wasn't fun. What were some of your main takeaways from that experience in particular? Yeah. Sometimes business decisions have to be made. If the numbers tell us that it doesn't make sense, then we have to pull the plug. So that is inevitable. But we have to try to lessen the emotional impact. I've never worked at a big corporation before. I don't know what it's like to go through a layoff at a big corporation where you're just a cog in the machine, right? I might be wrong, but maybe a layoff might have less impact that way. And there's generous severance packages and all that. And you don't feel as much emotional attachment to the, the big company. Unless you're at Google and they all go on TikTok and complain. Yeah. But at a startup, it's different because people kind of leave their big jobs to come work. The culture's decent. There's more emotional attachment in some ways to working at a startup. I'm generalizing, but it was true in our case, for sure. People generally really like the culture. So definitely a layoff would have a stronger impact. At the same time, there's more leeway to when you're doing a layoff at a startup to be more empathetic. I've seen layoffs at big companies where you just inform the day itself. You just lose access to your Slack account, your email. And it's all very corporate. Like you just inform over email that you're laid off. <laughs> but I think a startup is different. So in our case, one takeaway for us, and it's something we do now, is that we're very transparent with regards to the criteria for certain actions. Before we do layoffs, certain criteria have to be met. Like if our cash goes below a certain amount, so all that is is laid out very clearly every month in our town hall. So if we feel like the India expansion is below a certain threshold, we will make that very transparent and the India colleagues would know. In some sense, that helps actually because they know exactly how progress is going. They're not blindsided by any layoffs. It gives them more motivation perhaps to kind of keep their jobs, right? Like if they know it's not going well, they have to make it work. So yeah, being transparent, being communicative about what exactly is going to happen before things actually happen. I think those are the takeaways. I guess give the team more time to make the next moves. And finally, we have episode 133 with Adeline Yusman, Managing Director of Endeavor. Now, Endeavor is essentially a group of entrepreneurs who come together to mentor and help other younger entrepreneurs. Adeline himself has done a number of his own startups and one in particular was an on-demand job request platform that scaled to nearly 2,000 requests in two weeks and attracted half a million US dollars in two days. And here's how it happened. At that time, there was what I thought was huge, startup in the US called Magic, which was doing an on-demand, anything you wanted, by SMS. So I'm like, I don't have a tech guy. SMS can work. Okay, so let me find a couple of co-founders. At that time, my co-founder Nesh was in between jobs. And because he was in between jobs, he could be fully into this job. We came up with a lot of names, man. We wanted to copy the name Magic because we think if we copy the name Magic, we can get a name easier because everybody's looking at comparables, right? So we think about what to do. And then we came up with the name Go CK, which is Magic in Malay. Then someone texted, bro, is this a Bobwap service or what? Right? So we were like, okay, you gotta change the name, guys. And they were thinking, what are we doing? Okay, we're serving people who are essentially lazy to go out. We're helping people solve a big problem because I don't want to go and wait in the bank for two hours for my ticket to be called or line up at my cinema. There was no Grab delivery back then. Grab was my taxi, just a taxi car service. There were on-job guys who were dispatch riders, but they wouldn't dispatch only documents because they were working for companies. Gojet. Gojet wasn't even there. I mean, I mean, there was Goget. Goget was there. Francesca was there. And we were thinking, we don't want to own the riders. I just want to be the frontline service to be the American Express black concierge, but for affordable months. That was the idea. So we started off literally off my kitchen table, me and Nesh. We didn't have a tech co-founder, right? So we jigged up something from an SMS platform that we routed to a Samsung phone, which I think I still have. Our original Samsung phone that we were replying text. And we're thinking, I wonder who will use this service. How will you charge it? Again, shooting from the hip, no idea what we're doing. Started with, I think, 20 grand or 30 grand. Me and my dad's money, right? Thanks, dad. So then we hired Nash for a bit just to keep him. I think we started for about a week or two. And then it blew up because he posted, if we need anything done, just text his number. Then he posted it in the mummy's group. So mummies are perfect 
customer persona because if you're going through your pantang or your confinement period, you cannot go out. You're stuck. And if your husband is working, it makes it worse. So they need a lot of stuff done. But they trusted you, this random person from nowhere? It was on a Facebook group. We said, look, get, we get it done for you. You know, you're right. I didn't think about the trust issue at all. I don't know why it worked. <laughs> Maybe Nash looks very friendly. Maybe put my face there, I wouldn't have done so well. It worked. One of the girls took trust on us. I think it's also because she's my wife's friend. And she's prolific in the group. So because she said, guys, use this. They got me all these things. And then everybody started using us, right? So at the end of the first month, we blew up mainly just Nash who delivers, who picks up, who sorts out the orders, who replies texts, who are having like 10, 15 texts a day, which is a lot for one person to handle, right? And they were requests. Then we said, okay, this is time for us to probably look at raising money. Where will we go? I have no idea. So at the time, another friend of mine was doing a laundry startup, a laundry on-demand startup. Back then, everything was do Uber for something, right? So there was this Uber for laundry. And then he went to Singapore and he wanted to do the same thing there. He met a Japanese investor who said he was looking for an Uber of laundry or an Uber of something. It's Koichi side. Koichi, yeah. So he says, look, I don't want to lose this laundry stuff. But I got a friend doing an on-demand startup in KL. We got a thought. So he connected me to Koichi through LinkedIn. And I'm like, I don't know whether this is real because this is so easy. You know, typical Malaysian mentalities, everything must be hard. If it's easy, it's a scam. You know, so I'm like, okay, this is real. Okay. He says, I want to come to KL to see you. Can I meet you? And I remember that very, very succinctly. This is 2015, 2014. This is before anybody has the chance to Google term sheet, how do you look at valuation? Nobody knows. So I only knew what I wanted to raise based on my projection. And I wanted to raise half a million ringgit because at that time, that was what Credo was giving up. So I want to raise half a million ringgit to do this business. And I think that was more than enough because I had Nash and I think I had two more guys. Two new guys. Cool. Just finished uni. So here I was meeting Kuichi, showing my projections with another one of my co-founders at the time, but he left. He's in Texas now. He's Malaysian Chinese, spent most of his years in Texas, comes back with a weird twang that ain't Texan nor American. So, pitch the idea saying you want half a million ringgit. Koichi looks at us and says, Okay, I will give you half a million US. And I'm like, What do we do? Half a million dollars? Like, our model didn't have that. And I'm like, So, are you going to give us half a million yourself? Or how? Because I don't know, right? I don't know how a deal is that. And he says, No, I will find other co investors and I will make sure that the round is half a million dollars with a valuation of 2 million yuan at the time. Okay, um, who you bring? I will bring one super angel from Singapore, a Japanese guy, and I'll bring in Credo. And I'm like, oh, but we went to Credo before, and they said, no, for a different startup we're doing. He said, no, no, don't worry, I'll help you, because we have a co-investment. At that time, Credo was doing a co-investment with a few foreign investors for equity, because Credo's not known to take equity, they're known to give you grants. So this is the first and only time, I think, they were doing equity investment at seed. So we wanted a few that got it. We will do it. So give me a bank account. When someone gives you US dollar, you need a US dollar denominated account. So he says, okay, never mind. Don't worry about it. The term sheet, later we do. I'll wire the money first. So I'm like, what? He wired the money faster than I could open the bank account. We Googled it. The fastest to raise money based on brace wax because my nephew needed brace wax and Nash was the Bima last rider. I really like the name. We call it Rajin Runner. So the person who's Rajin will run for you. But then my other founder, Puban, changed it to Something to do with you assisting you as a valet, which makes sense, but a bit too highbrow. Because we were mainly at the time of dating them. And yeah, half a million dollars came in. I can share this publicly because I literally just spoke to Kuichi in person two to three weeks ago on this. The ringgit to USD was 3.7 when you signed the term sheet. But when the money came through a week later, the rate jumped to 4.1 or 4.2. When I had my first board meeting, and I only spent 30 grand a month because my burn was small, I mean, 20 grand a month, right? Kuichi was like, why don't you spend it on your I did, but we gained money for Forex. Is if you're not spending money, then don't raise venture money. You need to use venture money to scale. Again, I come from the mentality of I make a buck and I'll keep 20 cents to use to scale or to build a business. That was my lesson learned in terms of how to build a business with dry powder. That means you're scaling it inorganically, right? Because you've got investment money. We also spoke with Aline about failure, that walk of shame, and how Aline went from finding it very difficult to even talk about his failure to being very open about it, and why his investors have never regretted a single day of giving him money to try and make his startups work. I want to go back to that point of failure again. A lot of people face that all the time. How do you manage to get over that feeling of failure? Because you said before you had to reflect, it was very hard to go through. A lot of people never get out of it or they never really know how the best way to do it. So what was your way? It sounds as though you just found a job which just provided you lots of opportunities to do something and focus your mind on that. Was that the way for you? I mean, that was the result of probably being in denial and I'm not going to lie. I think I never even 
considered the conversation of failure for a couple of years, really. And I think a lot of people don't put a lot of effort into this, which is why you don't hear a lot of failure stories. The first time I spoke about feeling was with Credo last month, with Nash on stage. In a formal setting, this is my second time. I mean, I've spoke about failure, you know, in informal settings. The stigma of sing, you scale too fast, you burn, sing. And that sort of walk of shame, really. And to be honest, I don't think anyone really would have said it to my face in me, but it's more of the concern of, you know, being a typical Asian kid or Malaysian kid for that matter. And whenever you fell in class, they laugh at you, you know, and that sort of PTSD moments sort of ingrained in, in your behavioral set, which is why I think it was very tricky for me to embrace failure and say, yeah, I failed. I mean, I, I, I know I failed, but to say, yeah, I failed. And I'm now moving on to something else. You're right. I just soldiered on and did something else for a while until it hit me that I failed and Am I at peace with myself? So given that this is the second time you're talking about it, do you still struggle with sharing about failure? No, because I think where I'm sitting today in Endeavor, obviously I would want everyone to share. Because kudos to Tom, I didn't speak to Kuji for a while after I failed because I embarrassed, right? You know, they gave money to us and we failed. So I'll start with Tom. So Tom and I met him and I said, look, you know, I failed so many times and I don't know whether I want to get on the horse again, you know, because it's tough, right? It's a stigma. And then Tom says, hey man, how many fathers out there hit it right on their first go. The ones who fail, the reason why their success rate is so high is because they would have at least learned the failures. And if they did it, then obviously they won't get any subsequent investment beyond that. But if they hit it right the second or third time, it's because they never stopped trying, right? Yeah. It's like the Instacart founder, he just exited. But Instacart succeeded after 20 failures. Yeah. Prior. Overnight success after 20 failures, right? Because of the fact that you've learned every single time, but every single failure is painful because it's not just you failing, it's a bunch of guys you work with who failed. I'm fortunate because everyone in Mibalas that I work with are still very close to me today, including the ones who joined in three months before we closed. Because of that moment with Tom, I flew down to Singapore for one of the events last year and I met Koichi and I said, look, you know what, Koichi, I never said this to you formally, but I feel really, really horrible that we didn't make it work. And I wish we did. And he said, look, I don't regret a single day we gave money to you. Because to him, Despite us n not making it work, it wasn't because we were not trying to make it work. We tried our best and failed versus, yeah, it failed because we didn't do enough. Because there were other founders that do just the bare minimum and fail and then blames everybody else. We never blame our investors. We never blame the market. We knew that we could have done better had we planned better, had we known that this business requires an extensive amount of capital to grow, had we understood this industry better. Again, I mean, as I said, I like to shoot from the hip, right? But the truth is, even shooting from the hip it is an industry that I have zero knowledge. I'm not a logistics guy. It is, at the end of the day, a logistics and a customer service or a BPO, right? Business process outsourcing. Two industries that I either do not enjoy very much because it is a very, very manpower-intensive space. Now, you've seen just a snippet of some of the past episodes. I hope you've enjoyed them. I hope that it intrigues you enough to actually want to go and find out more. Just a reminder of what these episodes are. Episode 122 with Mr. Money. Episode 129 with Fabian of Secret Cinema. Episode 131 with Charlie Todd of Improv Everywhere. Episode 132 with Terence Lee of Tech in Asia. And episode 133 with Atlin Yusman of Endeavor Malaysia. And don't forget to stick around. The founder of Malaysian Pay Gap. This viral wage transparency platform is coming on. And if you haven't heard of MPG, essentially this is a place where people anonymously submit their wages, benefits, application process, and the behind the scenes of actually working at their roles to the public. It's very interesting. And they're launching a very epic summit as well in January. And I can't wait to release it next week. And finally, if you haven't done so already and you've been enjoying See Me so far, please do leave a rating review. Every single one counts. It really helps to get more eyeballs and earbuds on this podcast. All right. Time to sign off. See you next Sunday.